Today's scripture is from 1 Peter 2, 1-12. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted what the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock to make, that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh Havman. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace. We have just one announcement as we get started this morning, and that is next week is Missions Emphasis Week. And there are, as you can see, a number of things going on next week. So we encourage you to be here for sure on Sunday, but also consider coming with your family on Wednesday and with your family on Saturday. All of these events are for all of you. We want you to participate in Missions Emphasis Week as an opportunity for us to talk together, to think about together what it means to be on mission in our lives and across our country and across the world. So Missions Emphasis Week, this next Sunday, we will have a missionary partner here speaking on Sunday morning. And then on Wednesday, um, we will be partnering with Great Student Ministries at, uh, at their Wednesday night service for our event. And then Saturday, International Worship Night, we would love for you to come. It's going to be about an hour. It's a Saturday. We know that you don't always have Saturdays open, but we're asking you to make this one open to come and worship with us. There'll be an African choir here. There'll be people reading the scripture in other languages, and you can follow along and hear what your brothers and sisters in other languages, how they praise God. So we want you to join with us, partner with us, come to Missions Emphasis Week next week. We are starting uh, to turn the corner. We are past chapter 1 and into chapter 2 in our series in First Peter. And the series is called, Where is Your Hope?, because this is a question that Peter asks, and this is, a, uh, this is an essential question, you might say, for all of us. We all have to ask at some point in our life, where are we deriving our hope, our motivation? What is driving us? What is getting us out of bed in the morning and keeping us going all throughout the day? What keeps us from just laying down at 9.30 in the morning and saying, I need a nap? Right? And just staying there until the next day. 
What is our hope? Where is your hope? Peter wants to know. Brooks has been preaching this series thus far, and he showed us that in the first chapter, we are directed to Christ, that hope is supposed to direct us to Christ. And so we've seen that in the first chapter of First Peter. And also that fear is supposed to keep us from sin, that when we do the wrong thing, we know there are consequences, and we shouldn't want those consequences. We should want the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. But there is a question that is sort of begged by these two things. What does holy living look like? If we are called to holiness, which Peter says that we are in the first chapter of 1 Peter, he says, you're called to be holy, even as God is holy. What does holy living look like? It for sure looks like directing our hope to Christ and staying away from sin. But practically, day by day, what does this mean? How do we do this? We're going to talk about that today. When does it start? When does it end? What does it mean to live a holy life? In Second, First uh, Peter chapter 2, in the first 12 verses, we're going to see, and maybe you just picked up on, a couple of different things that Peter is going to do to direct us to answer this question of what holy living looks like. And he's going to start with a question, a qualifying question. He's going to ask, have you tasted that the Lord is good? So if you'll remember from 1 Peter chapter 1, he's writing to the elect exiles. He's writing to people who have been named as Christ's own. But he's going to ask this question again, not assuming that they are in fact Christ's own, wanting to know if you are indeed Christ's. So he's going to challenge you on that. And then he's going to say, if that's the case, you ought to be craving something. You ought to want something. And then he's going to lay out a commandment. Not all commandments are the same. We're used to talking about commandments in the context of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall and thou shall not. But sometimes a commandment is just, here's the way it is. This is the truth. I am making a commandment. I am laying in the, in the truth of the world a thing that is right and good. And, and this is the case here, that Christ is the cornerstone. And then finally, there is this calling. All of them are apparently point one. I'm going to blame uh, file transfer. I will definitely not blame our proofreader because she would have caught that. So it's either me or it's the computer. You can pick one. It's, it's me. So... There's actually four points there, not intended to be a lie. But this is where 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to take us. And it should help us to answer this question, what does it mean to live holy lives? Because when we say that, right, when we get up here and Brooks or myself or Jason or the other pastors, when we say things like, be holy, you think, yeah, right, sure, great, you do that. We pay you to do that. But this is a call to all of us, paid or unpaid, staff or no, to be holy as God is holy. So we need to understand what that means. What does that look like? Pray with me and we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. You spoke through your son and your servant, Peter. Lord, our brother, you showed him what a holy life looks like. And Lord, he had no idea. He thought he knew what it was time and time again, and he was always wrong. And you were patient with him, and you showed him time and again what it meant. Help us to be patient this morning, Lord, and to see what you would have us see from your word, Lord. Not my words, but your words. Not my thoughts, but your thoughts. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll see how many points we actually end up with. We might only get one today. 
So 1 Peter, 1, uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, reads like this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this is a way of speaking. This is a way of speaking that can be a little difficult. So let's pay attention to what Peter just did here in these first three verses. Uh, The verse one here in the ESV is so, in some translations, it's therefore. In both cases, whether it's so or therefore, it's referring back to chapter one, the first part of first Peter. So Peter is laying out an argument in his letter. And in his letter, he says, you ought to have your hope in Christ because Jesus has saved you and look at who he is and look at what he does. Therefore, live this way or so live this way. But he qualifies that with this question. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's an implied or an understood question here. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? If you are one of the original recipients of this letter, one of the churches to whom first Peter was brought, right? Because copies of letters were brought and read aloud. That's how they received the scripture. Most people couldn't read it for themselves. If you were one of the first recipients, you would have heard this question and you would have had to ask it of yourself. So I'm asking it of you today. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? When you took communion, if you just took communion, did you taste that the Lord is good? Is that what you were tasting? That food, that drink, that his body was broken for you and that his blood was spilled for you, that there is a new covenant in his blood. Is that what you were tasting? Because if so, Peter has some more words for you. If not, and we will get to that, if not, this is really not for you. So, Indeed, in Scripture, we are gonna, we're going to hear time and again about people who have believed and people who haven't. But right now, Peter is saying, if you have tasted that God is good, this is for you. Here's what I want you to know. Okay? So if you are answering that question in the affirmative, that yes, you have tasted that the Lord is good, then we go back to verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. If you fear the Lord, if you trust that he is good, start living your holy life by getting rid of the evil to which you used to cling. And now immediately some of you are thinking, get rid of the evil, right? So I'm going to go home and I'm going to get rid of my evil china and I'm going to get rid of my evil silverware and my evil uh, whatever else it is that I have laying around the house, right? Anybody have china anymore? Inherited from their grandmother? Yes? Don't know what to do with it. It's a box in the basement. That's not what he's talking about. We might have things in our house that cause us to stumble, right? We might have books or magazines or movies or any number of other things that cause us to stumble. And for sure, get rid of those things if they're causing you to stumble. Get, get them out of your house. But look at what Peter is talking about. He's talking about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You don't need an object for those things. You just need you. Those things are in your heart. So Peter says, if you want to live a holy life, and if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then start living that holy life by getting rid of the things that you have done, the things that you have believed, the things that you have thought that are evil, that are wicked. Put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. That's enough for a lifetime, folks. Right? You could be doing that every day for the rest of your life, getting rid of those things. I certainly could. So this is how we begin to live a holy life. We look at our life and we say, where am I malicious? Where do I want the worst for people? Where do I deceive people, even myself? 
Where am I speaking lies and believing lies? Where am I a hypocrite? And where am I envious? And where am I slandering? I need to get rid of those things. If I've tasted that the Lord is good, I can't be doing these things anymore because there's no place for those things in my life. It is not to earn his salvation. He prefaces this with, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you've already been saved, then get rid of these things. Not to be saved, but because you have been saved. He goes on. He says, there ought to be this craving. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it may grow up into salvation. How does a newborn infant long for milk? Does the baby think about it cognitively? Have you ever seen an infant, a newborn baby, thinking? Man, I think I'd like to eat about 2 o'clock today. Be great. Maybe another snack at 2.30. That's not how babies crave. How do babies crave? Instinctually. Right? I've had five. I've not had five. My wife has had five children. I've been present at all of their births. And it is unbelievable. It is miraculous the way that babies instinctually know how to eat. This is how we ought to crave Christ instinctually. So much so that we don't even think about it. Like a teenage boy staring into a refrigerator, right? That's how we ought to crave Christ. Like all of our hope is right there in front of us. Like this is beyond thought. This is what he wants from us to crave Christ in this way. So we put a, We put away all malice and all deceit and all slander and envy. And we also need to fill that, right? We have to cling to Christ every day, crave him, put away one thing and take on the other thing. This is a training. Brooks talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not trying. This isn't just try harder. Rather, this is training that we engage in on a daily basis so that we can grow up into our salvation. If we just try harder, we will fail. Right? You can't try harder to crave something instinctually. Instead, you have to get rid of the things that are in the way by Christ's power and grace, not on your own, submitting those things to him, saying, Lord, I know I'm deceitful. I know I'm slanderous. I know I'm malicious. Lord, take these things away from me and also fill me with yourself so that we can grow up into our salvation. But based on what? That's, that's a relevant, that's an important question. How are we doing this? Because like I said, it can't be by ourselves. If we try to do this by ourselves, it's just trying. That's, that's all it is. Just try harder, try harder, try harder. And we'll fail and we'll feel terrible. And we'll make other people feel terrible because instead of helping them, when we see them trying and failing, we'll say, why aren't you trying harder? Instead, we need to be training, depending, based on this commandment. It stands in Scripture, Peter says. It stands in Scripture. This is from Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How will we not be put to shame? The song told us, we'll live forever. The shame that Peter has in mind here is death and destruction. Not just, not just being ashamed of your actions, right? He's talking about life and death. He's talking about eternity. And he's saying that Christ is a cornerstone. He is true. We can trust in him. It's the promise of salvation that is our foundation for daily faith. 
that we would live forever. This is real for Peter. He believes it. He believes that Christ is coming again because he saw Christ risen from the dead. He's a faithful witness. He says, I saw Jesus die and then I saw him come back. I know that he is real. I know that his resurrection is real. And when he says he's going into heaven to prepare a place for us, I believe him and I believe that he's returning. And that's the foundation. That's how daily I'm able to put aside all of these things that I shouldn't be doing and daily ask the Lord to bring in all the things that I need because of who Christ is. And to an end that is bigger than the one that we would choose for ourselves. So all of us have goals, right? All of us have, whether they're, well, they're planned out, whether they're written out or not, all of us have aspirations, things that we want to see happen. But here is one that Christ is calling us to that Peter says is more important than all the ones that we would choose for ourselves. He says, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more here in a second about what that means as a calling on our lives. But this is a goal from this commandment that we, most of us, never envision for ourselves. Most of you don't come here thinking, yeah, I want to be a living stone this morning. Right? Anybody wake up with that thought in their head? That's fair. Right? We don't think about ourselves that way. Sometimes we can get into the practice of thinking of ourselves like members of the body. Right? We get really invested in that idea that I have certain gifts and you have certain gifts and together we work together. But this living stone thing, that's a little harder to wrap our heads around. Peter, we had you at, uh, at infants. I can get an infant longing for milk, but living stones, I'm not sure about that. What do you mean by that? He says Christ is the cornerstone, Right? not just the foundation, but the foundation on which the whole building depends, the thing that goes in first so that the rest of the foundation can be square and true and right and good. And then we, like living stones along with Christ, are being built up into a spiritual house. In the past, there was a temple that housed the Holy Spirit of God. But Peter is saying to first century believers who would have understood this better than we do, you're the temple now. Together, the Holy Spirit is here. So God is dwelling in you with Christ as the cornerstone. This is the way I want it to be. So submit to the will of God so that you can be built up into his holy house because you can't build yourself. This requires submission because you can't do this by yourself. It requires you depending on him. So there is then a calling for us. And it is this. Oh, no, there's a commandment that we have to address first, which is this that if you believe, these things are for you, right? This honor is for you. But if you don't believe, and there's two places here in Scripture, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8, that, that Peter wants to reference, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then the Scripture says something that's difficult here. It says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Some of you are going to want to ask the question, Destined to do, what does that mean? Does that mean that people are destined from eternity past to disobey? Some people would argue that. I don't think this is the best place in Scripture to have that argument. Rather, the simple reading is the better reading, which is that we stumble when we disobey the word, that we are destined to stumble if we disobey, if we disobey the word, because you cannot walk in a straight path in disobedience. It's impossible. You're going to fall down. You're going to trip over yourself 
over your lies and your malice, over your slander. So if you have believed, there is this honor for you, this commandment, this cornerstone that you can build your life on. Daily lives of holiness, longing for pure spiritual milk. That's a possibility for you if you have believed. But if you have not, understand you're going to stumble. You should expect hardship. You will stumble because you will be disobeying. This is a difficult thing, but it's the truth. It's something that we have to grapple with. If I'm stumbling, why? Not trials because we're doing what's right. Peter is very clear about that. There are trials that will come because you are doing what's right. Here he's saying that there are trials that come when you do what's wrong, when you disobey the word. Now, Peter is clear, the scripture is clear, that all you have to do to stop stumbling is to believe, to accept Jesus Christ for who he says he is and what he says he does, to believe that that's true, that he died and rose again, that you can have everlasting life by repenting of your sins and believing in him. That, that is your way out of this. But remember that here, this is not who Peter is primarily speaking to. He's primarily speaking to people who have tasted that the Lord is good. So this question then, if I believe but holy living is hard, what do I do with that? If you have all come here this morning to Grace Community Church because you believe or because you want to believe, but you look at the prospect of living a holy life and you think that's hard. It's hard for me to just control my tongue when I hit my thumb with a hammer, right? It's hard for me to just control my tongue when my child shows up at my bed at 3 a.m. If you had this, right? The sneaky child, you don't hear them coming unless they're whispering in your ear and you're awake. You're like, what is going on? I'm not at my best in those moments. It's hard for me to be at my best in those moments. How am I supposed to live a holy life in this world? This is what the Lord has for us this morning. He says, I am calling you to something bigger than you have ever imagined for yourself. He says, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that's God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, Christ, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're going to take a few minutes to unpack this because there's a lot going on there. And this is a difficult passage as passages go in the New Testament and the epistles. There are a lot of New Testament epistle passages that are very straightforward, like the one that we began with. Put away malice. Got it. Good. But then we're a living stone, and now we're a chosen people and a royal priesthood. And what do you mean by all of this, God? So let's take a few minutes and look at what God means by all of this. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, this is the very beginning of the people of Israel. And the reason that this passage is important is because Peter is referencing Exodus chapter 19. God had a plan for Israel. And most of you have heard at least some version of the Exodus story where Israel goes into Egypt and they're there, they're slaves for 400 years, and then God calls them out and they're going to be a people now. And they're going to go to the promised land, right? They're going to go to Canaan, they're going to be God's people. But understand that even in that, God had a purpose for his people that they never, ever saw realized. So this is Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 5. It says this, uh, that... 
if you will, this is God speaking to Moses and to the Israelites. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me among all those peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God's command to Moses that he would speak these words. This is before the law, before the Ten Commandments is given. God says, here's my plan for you. Obey my voice, listen to what I tell you to do, and here's what I will make you to be, a kingdom of priests to all the people in the world. When he says priests here, understand he's not talking about what we understand a modern priest to be, right? There is no Roman Catholic church when Moses and the Israelites are at Sinai. doesn't happen yet. Right? So he's not talking about that kind of priest. Instead, he is talking about somebody who does this, who proclaims the excellencies of the one who calls us out of darkness and into light. That is the plan he has for Israel, and that is the plan he has for us. And we know it's for us, not just for Israel, because Peter began this book by saying, to the elect exiles, to the people who are cast out and to the people who are all over the place. So it is the Jews, but it is also for us, those who are far off. And we know it's also for us because of what's said in Revelation. So from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 1 and see what John says here about being a kingdom of priests. John, uh, Revelation 1, John says this. I'll just read, it says 4 through 6 there. I'm going to read 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The king above all kings, in other words. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who, was, who is and who is to come, the Almighty. So this is what John tells us about being a kingdom of priests, that we are saved by Christ's blood into this calling, and that it is for his glory that we are called. And then he reaffirms this a few chapters later in chapter 5. We get a new song starting in verse uh, 9, I think I have a starting. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, this is singing to Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, people from every tribe and language and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When Peter says this here in the, in the New Testament, this reference to being a kingdom of priests, he is both referring back to the earliest, the earliest possible memory for any Jews and the earliest possible understanding of what it meant to be called by God, right? The very beginning when he called people out of Egypt and also he is looking forward to the consummation, to the end, to the time when Jesus will return. And he's saying all of that is God's plan and you are a part of it if you have been called by him. So here's your calling. I want you to be living stones. I want you to be built up into the house of God. I want the Holy Spirit to dwell in you so that you can go out 
and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You all don't think of yourselves as a people. Most of you look exactly alike, right? You don't want to think that way, but it's true, right? We dress alike. We look alike. We think we have differences. I'm from Northeast Iowa. No, I'm from Northwest Iowa, right? And there are differences for sure. But Jesus, through Peter here, says, all of those are washed away when you are my people. And so we are closer than we suspect, closer than we realize. The differences we think get in the way don't get in the way, the Lord says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you're chosen, royal priests, a holy nation with a heavenly purpose. Why, why royal? Because Christ is the king. It's his nation and we're his people. And we're co-inheritors with him of this kingdom. We're his brothers and his sisters. And why priest? Because he wants us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. So this is our calling. This is what all of this means, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, that God has something intended for us. Holiness is not just so that we look different from people. It's so that we can proclaim light in a dark world. That's something that we maybe have not thought about when we thought about holiness and how we are orienting our hope. So think about this. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, if you've accepted his call of holy life, how are you going to live differently in light of that call? How is your life going to change as a result of that calling? Maybe you don't believe. And so I'm not talking to you, but if you have accepted Christ, then you have a king. Do you serve him? In America, we don't bend our knees to any man, right? But God is no man. He is the God-man Jesus, but he is also the heavenly father who sits on the throne. Nobody can stand in front of him. So do you bow your knee to God? Because he is your king. As was prayed earlier, are we going to accept him as Lord, not just as Savior? Because there are all kinds of things in your daily life where you are choosing to make yourself king. And the scripture is clear that he is the king above all kings. So who gets to be king in your life? Is it Jesus or is it you? If you have tasted and seen that he is good, serve him. You're a priest. You proclaim God's excellency. When was the last time you told somebody how good God was? It's so important that we confess our sins to each other and also, and also tell how God has saved us from those sins because that is what welcomes people into the body. They want to know how God has worked in our hearts, in our lives. They want to see that. That's the pure spiritual milk, right? These stories of redemption and deliverance. This is the essence of what God is doing in all of us. And we need to share it with each other. We need to let each other know how Christ is working in and through us. We need to be able to tell each other, I had problems with anger. I had problems with lust. I had problems with any number of things. Right? But Christ has saved me because he has saved us. If we've tasted that he's good, he has saved us out of those things. So this is our responsibility. You're a holy people. Do you claim the darkness or do you claim the light? Think about that for a second. In your daily life, what allegiances are the strongest? If I've never met you before and I meet you for the first time and you're telling me about yourself, do you claim things of the darkness 
Or do you claim things of the light? Who are you affiliated with? When people see your lives, what do they see? And then finally, God has shown you mercy. Do you repent? That might seem like a funny question after mercy. Why why repentance? I thought repentance was what we did when we were saved, right? Well, yeah, that's true. God wants you to repent of your sins so that you can accept him into your heart fully. But here's the thing. Repentance is just turning away from sin. That's what repent means. It means turn away. Go the opposite direction. And you are going to be tempted to go the wrong direction every day of your life. And Romans says it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. The fact that he is merciful to us. Once we had not received mercy, First Peter says, but now we have received mercy. So if you've received mercy, what do you do when you're faced with a decision to do the wrong thing? Do you repent? Do you turn around and go the right way? Or do you just head down that wrong road? What are you doing with God's love for you? He has given you his love. He has shown you his mercy. While you were still a sinner, he died for you and offers you salvation. So what do you do with that mercy? Do you repent? This is how he wraps up this section. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Don't, don't run down those wrong roads because... It is war for you. You are entering into the battlefield. It's like walking out onto a minefield. Turn around. Go the right way. Don't put yourself in harm's way. And also keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We continue to repent because our king wants to clean us and also use his work in us as a testimony for non-believers. He wants people to see in our lives that we have victory over sin. That's what he wants to give us, is victory over sin and death. He died so that we could have those things. So he says, turn away from sin. You have my power. You have my body. You have each other to encourage one another, to pray with each other, to love each other. So serve each other this way and be a holy temple for my Holy Spirit so that the world looks at you and they try to slander you and they can't. And instead, when I come, they have to praise my name because of the good that I was doing in you. That's his plan. That's his calling for you, for you today. So daily holy living is about actively putting away evil and repenting when you fail. That's true. It is, point one again, about filling your life with the truth so that you crave Christ. It is also about carefully examining your life in light of God's calling and listening to the leading of your king. But here's the last and most important part of point one. (laughs) You're going to have to do it again tomorrow. You're going to have to practice Christ's presence and be faithful. I asked at the beginning of, uh, of, of this message, when does it start, this holy living thing? And when does it end? It doesn't end. It ends when Christ returns. Doing it again tomorrow is the hardest part. Doing it again later today is the hardest part. My wife and I talk about how the Christian life is like doing the dishes. It's never done. Right? It's never done. Doing the laundry, same thing. You can stop, but there are immediate consequences. It is hard to do it again, but 
Peter says, I have 2.12 there, because he says, keep doing this. Keep your conduct. Continue to keep your conduct in front of outsiders so that they will praise God. It's an ongoing, ongoing daily sort of decision that you're making to follow Christ. It's an ongoing daily decision to train with other believers, to submit your will to Christ, to recognize him as king. And there are all kinds of things that you can do to make this easier on yourself, like living in the body and worshiping with the body, right? There are things that you can do to make this harder on yourself, like not repenting and choosing to walk down roads you know you shouldn't go down. But Christ has given us this, right? That we can be in his presence, that we can have his Holy Spirit inside of us. We don't have to do this ourselves. We can't do this ourselves. This holy living, he is going to do in and through us if we will let him be our king. Let's pray. Holy God, we are lost without you. And we thank you and praise you that you have given us your son to lead and guide us every step of the way. We praise and thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to live inside of us every day. It is so hard for us, Lord. You know it is hard for us because you live this life, you walk this earth, you understand what it means to be tempted in the ways that we are tempted. And yet, Lord, you always chose your heavenly Father. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we can do the same. Lord, help us today to choose the hope that we have in you, to not choose ourselves, Lord, but to follow you. I pray that you would work in and through us today. Help us to see how we can be built up into a house that is acceptable for you, Lord, a house where your name is praised, where we regularly proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into your glorious light. Ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you would like to come up for prayer this morning, we invite you to do that. We've been inviting you to do that every week. We want to continue to do it because that's one of the ways that we do this every day. Have a good week. Go in grace.